Hi, I'm Mark Haywood, and this is Behind the Spine, a podcast which finds learning opportunities for writers in the most unlikely of places. You're never done with this topic of, of narrative and finding learning opportunities. It's everywhere. It keeps going. To borrow from the words of American philosopher William James, it is said that in every two-person conversation, there are actually six people. The two people as they see each other, the two people as they see themselves, and the two people as they really are. And so the narrative you don't have as much control over as you think is the narrative of you. That's why it's useful from time to time to reflect on where you are, who you've been to different people, and where you're going next. And that's exactly what I'm doing in today's episode. Believe it or not, it's now been a year since I first sat in front of the microphone to record an episode of Behind the Spine, with no idea how the next few episodes would pan out, let alone now nearly two full series. For a bit of role reversal, I've drafted in help in the form of my producer, Ollie, who started by asking what inspired me to create Behind the Spine. The inspiration for it was that this was always a natural extension of a project called The Writing Salon, which I've had the very good fortune to be the host and custodian of for the last few years. The Writing Salon began about 15, 16 years or so ago as an opportunity for members of what was the hospital club in central London to find out who in the membership were fellow writers. Uh, And that was originally set up by a guy called Paul Tyrrell, who handed over the reins to me in about 2017. So I'd been running the writing salon for several years. And that was really always an opportunity to try and get writers to think a little differently about their craft. I'm not a teacher and I don't feel qualified to tell people how to write. I can only share things that I think will be useful about writing and how I do it and how I approach it and where my inspiration comes from. And there was an opportunity a year or so ago, or just over now, to put that into a different format. So to have the writing salon, which would be the in-person slash virtual, as it then became pretty quickly, event to the weekly podcast that would potentially give people other sources of inspiration for their work. And because of the unique nature of podcasting in that, you know, what we've proven over the last year is that we don't need to be in the same room, although it does help. Lockdown gave us an opportunity to get to people that we wouldn't ordinarily get to because they would ordinarily be busy. And not to suggest that the people that we've had on have not been busy, but they've had a lot of, you know, their own scheduling pulled because they haven't been able to do what they wanted. So I'd always had the idea of having some form of audio or indeed video content for the writing salon as an accompaniment. Um, But I didn't want to brand it as the writing salon because at the time the writing salon was part of what had become H Club, which used to be Hospital Club. But very early in lockdown, the club closed and has not reopened. So essentially, we took full editorial control over the writing salon and were therefore able to launch the podcast in our own vision. So it became, sadly, because of what happened to the club, um, that gave us an opportunity that we'd been looking for. And, And so it's really been an attempt to give writers some other and additional support 
during lockdown. And as we're easing out of that now, that's something that we hope can continue for many, many series to come. But that's that's how it started. Yeah, and, and the writing uh, salon, like a phoenix sort of rising from the ashes now, we're escaping lockdown very slowly but surely. But it, it sounds like in a way, um, you know, it, it's, de- it's unfortunate demise leading to Behind the Spine perhaps is uh, one of the many silver linings that we've spoken about on the show. So many guests have given us a number of different silver linings. I feel like I've written um, that, that those two words uh, over and over again during the course of the last two seasons. So, you know, do you think it was, do you think it's been a blessing for not just you, but other podcasters as well, having the opportunity to sit back spend a bit of time with podcasting something you know maybe a field that they just never thought that they had the time to experiment with yes i do and not just podcasting either i i know you know as a writer i've had more access to producers and directors at any point in my career during the last 12 months it's been extraordinary um to notice the difference so people who would ordinarily be on set or in the middle of pre or post production are obviously not doing that and so my calendar is is really busy and I feel very very grateful for that the only thing that I lost was um theatre so I had a play on at the vault festival in central London in February of last year that was then due to tour that was the aim obviously all of the offers that we'd had from different festivals um across the UK and and one in France as well that got pulled so that was the only thing that I had that got reduced but yes I think there are clearly more podcasts now than ever before the number of podcasts being released on a daily basis is increasing there's a huge infrastructure that's been set up to support it there was a point in early lockdown where you couldn't get a microphone for love nor money and as i think everybody sort of pivoted online but yes absolutely Although I briefly I am... thought about selling mine on the black market, you know, I could make a... <laughs> <laughs> then I thought I'd be a podcaster without a podcast, Mike. So <laughs> no, exactly. But I, I think it's such an accessible format, you know, whatever you are interested in and however you wish, however much time you wish to engage with that subject, there will be, you know, a, a podcast for you. There's something I, I'd like to pick up on there, though. Uh, and you mentioned that because it's such an accessible po- format, podcasting has exploded. But there is also, alongside the the wealth of incredible podcasts out there, an abundance of awful ones. <laughs> and um, you told me, uh, and this, you know, I feel very grateful for, for your comment here uh, as a podcast producer of Behind the Spine. But you, you told me that you had a discussion with your friend who, who was thinking about starting their own podcast. And, and you said, you know, one of the major things you need to consider is whether or not you hire a producer because it's accessible, but it can be done badly if you don't invest the time or if you don't have the skills. Well, I, I've certainly learned a lot myself from listening to other podcasts and to talking to producers like you. And one of the things I was saying to my friend who has subsequently gone and set his um, podcast up, it's a show about skiing. He is one of the co-founders of a bar in um, the French town of Teen in the Alps. And what I said to him was, look, you're obviously compensating for the fact that we can't see you assuming it's just going to be an audio podcast, not a video one. So whatever you can do to give different tonal qualities to either your voice through scripted or unscripted um, segments, the better, because that will help the listener. And I think that this whole notion of these really tortured handoffs uh, that start, you know, 
welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. You know, I think we're keen to get to the meat of the podcast. We don't necessarily need, you know, the introduction. Yeah, we don't need any of that. So the more you can script, you know, the easier it becomes for the listener. I, I think, you know, working with a producer allows you to have different options. It gives you a different perspective. It gives you something potentially to say no to um in the sense that you might make a suggestion and i might say ah okay no i don't i don't think so but actually that's given me another idea maybe we can maybe we can do this and one of the biggest things i said to him my friend was you don't have a monopoly on good ideas so you know surround yourself with as many people that you think can help as possible and don't assume the dream guest, if you have one, is going to be the dream guest. Sometimes you get moments of absolute magic and gold dust from incredibly unexpected sources. And, and those end up becoming the best episodes, the ones that you didn't necessarily think were going to be the things that would really make people sit up, take notice and, and listen. So, yes, I mean, it's a it's a team. OK, it's hosted by me, but it's a it's very much a team project. And I think that that's an important thing. And also I don't necessarily have, I can do the technical things that a producer does in terms of audio. It just takes me considerably longer. So, (laughs) you know, if you surround yourself with people who are better than you at certain things in everything that you do, not just podcasting, I think there's a good lesson in that. Yeah. And um, touching on those moments where you've had a guest who's just maybe taking you by surprise you've had you've had a few of those actually and uh, you know dream guest is it's a difficult thing to pinpoint it is and and my definition of a dream guest changes all of the time because I didn't expect to get anybody to agree to come on you know it's a very pretty crowded market we're asking them to give up their time um I mean the caliber of of the whole series I think is very high but we very quickly within a short space of time got a yes from Dame Evelyn Glennie. And that's one of my favorite episodes, not necessarily because of what she said, but I don't know if people know this. Um, If you've heard her talk, then you might do. But she is obviously a world-renowned percussionist, but she is completely deaf and has been for pretty much all of her adult life. And we hear a lot about Zoom fatigue, but She's completely deaf and she had to and has to lip read the entire interview over video conference. Now, that's hard enough when you're face to face. But when half of your face is hidden behind a microphone, that is pretty astonishing. And I I asked her off air, I said, if I pronounced your name Evelyn rather than Evelyn, would you know? And she said, yes, because your mouth makes a completely different shape. And it was astonishing to me that she, A, said yes to coming on the show, that B, she came on the show and lip read all of my questions via Zoom, via web camera. I mean, that's that's astonishing. And I, I don't think people, you know, understand how hard that must be. To listen is actually a really tiring thing because it requires focus and concentration. So you can't listen to something and do something else, you know. So if you want to engage in something, this is why a lot of the emotional experience I get as a musician is when 
I'm participating in it myself, and I don't mean that in an egotistical way. It's simply that that's when you're allowing the body to participate in the sound, you know. So to be a passive listener is quite a different experience than being the participator. So it was it was incredible, but there were there were other moments as well, and I've I've learned a lot about the dream guest and what that might mean because it isn't necessarily what you might think. You might think that your dream guest is perhaps the most high profile person operating in whatever subject matter you are podcasting about, right? So if you're doing a podcast about music, you might say, okay, well, who's the biggest music star or music producer on the planet? We'll get them on. They'll, they'll be the dream guest. That might be true, but the capacity for that not to be true and to trip you up is also very, very high. So for me, the guest, you know, the dream guest is somebody that has a connection with the show after the event. They don't just turn up, plug the book or the film or whatever it is. They engage with the show online, on social media afterwards, and they have a relationship with the show. Are there any people, any guests who've come on who are, a shining example of that. I one of my favorite episodes of um, we talked about Dame Evelyn, but one of my other favorite episodes from series one was with Professor Sunny Singh, and she is both uh, an academic and a very prolific and successful writer. And we had a conversation about a number of things. It started as a conversation about the lack of representation and the lack of diversity in literature, the lack of opportunities that were given to um, writers of colour. We also spoke about what at the time were events that were in in the press and were very current. They were um, all about the statues of slave traders or people associated with the slave trade being torn down um, in the UK and the Black Lives Matter protests in the US. And I, and I deliberately asked quite a provocative question. I said, you know, isn't it, isn't it interesting that at the, at the same time, the BBC have just released a new drama about the Windrush generation? Do you feel that that's timely? And that was a deliberate attempt to expose the hypocrisy of the notion timely as it relates to diversity. And she quite rightly said. When I hear anyone say the word timely, I cringe. When is it not timely? We shouldn't wait for black men and women dying and being murdered brutally in order to suddenly decide we are going to stand in solidarity and publish more more stories that may humanize black men and women. It was a fascinating conversation and she engaged with the show for months afterwards and still does to this day so that if we ever have somebody on as we did at the beginning of series two when i spoke with professor richard bell um about his book about the slave trade i always drop her a line and and let her know because i know that she is interested in this and i think that that those sorts of guests the people that have that ongoing interest and relationship with the show really make the whole thing, you know, much more worthwhile and much more impactful, I think, for the audience as well. The audience will probably have noticed over the course of the last two series that there isn't one singular thing that you talk about. Everything is on the table, you know, nothing's off limits. Is that, do you, are you a firm believer in in the fact that there is a narrative in everything? Is everything interesting? I think there is certainly a narrative in in most things. 
and your imagination fills in the blanks for the rest. So yes, everything does have a narrative. Whether everything is interesting to everybody, I'm not sure. But I think, you know, if you can see there are, there's a podcast for pretty much everything. So as if you're whatever you're interested in, there will be a podcast about it, which means there's a narrative about it. And yes, you know, we've had like I never expected to be talking to somebody about sex toys for disabled people. You know, that that isn't something that when we sat down editorially and went, what is this show all about? Who might we get on? However, I did read an article about the company, about how it was set up and about what it was trying to achieve and how it was trying to give disabled people the same rights in terms of pleasure and self-pleasure as able-bodied people. There is quite clearly a narrative about that. And the more you dig into it, the more interesting that becomes and the more you inform yourself about the world. It speaks to independence in the bedroom. It speaks to my sense of masculinity, my sense of manhood, my sense like, like, think about it. Most people, when they have a wank, they can do it independently. And it's, it's, whereas if you're disabled, that's just not an option for you. So it goes much deeper than just, I'm going to have a wank. It's like, this is my time to, for privacy. This is my time to feel like a man. This is my time to explore my sexuality for myself. And when I decided, I made the conscious decision to stop masquerading because it hurt. I lost a lot. I grieved a lot. I continue. I still grieve a lot. But there is also things I'm very personally interested in, things like professional road race cycling or professional boxing that I believe has a narrative that goes way beyond two people, you know, slugging it out in a ring or, or 150 people in a, you know, in a, in a bike race. I, I do believe because if you engage with things like sport, there is a narrative about struggle and about triumph over disaster and about good versus evil and all of those things that lends itself to storytelling. And I think there is story in everything. Everything has its roots in some form of struggle or some form of journey that a person or an individual or an object or whatever it might be has to go on. So when we spoke with for the first episode of series two with Tristram Hunt, the director of the V&A Museum, it was really all about the fact that objects that you might not think have stories, we, we tend to think of them as having stories only at two points in their life, one when they were created and two when they came into the museum's possession. But actually, they lived lives. They're not animate objects, but they did live lives. And, you know, writers often think of objects simply as business or props we don't necessarily think of them about stories and, and what we've tried to do is show that there is a very clear narrative in something that is inanimate you just have to look for it so yes i i honestly believe there's a narrative in everything and that's what we've tried to explore objects change the identity of objects change and the meanings of objects change to different people so if we take for example uh, tipu's tiger one of the great uh, objects within the collection, commissioned by Tipu Sultan, the legendary kind of ruler of Mysore, as a symbol of resistance to his children against British colonialism. And it depicts a tiger ripping the neck off a British officer. And it's a sign of how they will win the battle against colonial forces. But then when it's captured by the British, its meaning changes totally, and it becomes a symbol of British power that they have in a sense, captured and neutered the tiger and brought it back to London to put on display. And 
that's one kind of passageway in the, in the life um, of the object, of which there are, you know, thousands around the museum. You um, have done a lot of writing for another podcast as well, um, The End of the Line. Um, can you tell anyone who hasn't heard of the podcast just a little bit about it and where that inspiration came from? Sure. So The End of the Line is now on its second series. And I started writing this back in 2016 and it was something I was doing off the side of my desk and it was a personal thing it was never ever going to see the light of day I just happened to mention I was in Los Angeles for several months and I happened to mention it to a friend and she said oh no you really really should write this and 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 it was all it's all about um it has subsequent subsequently become a multi-series audio exploration of the way we treat women who don't have kids and the inspiration was that my wife and I don't have kids and I always resented the questions that she and I would get it never bothered her but it always bothered me and in the end I decided to do something about it and roll the clock forward to around the beginning of 2019 I happened to mention it to a friend who is a writer and an actress who ends up being in episode one she said, I was looking for something to record for a self-tape, couldn't find anything. And I said, well, I've got something you might be interested in. And she was like, oh my God, this is my story or something very similar to my story. And then I mentioned it to somebody else and that ended up becoming episode six because she basically just grabbed my arm and said, you have to tell my story. So the more people I spoke to, the more stories I got. And in the end, I started to run out of my own ability to tell the story. So I started to bring in writers to write for the show. And one of the writers in series one, um, I did a, for those people that don't know, I did a, years ago, I did a master's in screenwriting. And every year I go back to the course to talk about what it's like on the outside as a, as a writer dealing with blood, sweat and tears on a daily basis. Anyway, I mentioned this project. She got in touch, she pitched this idea and that became episode five of The End of the Line, which is about a woman called Bryony who returns to work after several months off after something traumatic happened to her. The writer, a lady called Helen Cattle, then pitched another idea to me, which I really, really liked. And by this time, we'd brought on a casting director for the second series because I was working my way through my contacts and actresses that I'd worked with or was friends with that wanted to be involved in the show. So because we then expanded the theme to include more stories, stories about disabled characters or transgender characters, it was quite clear that I didn't have the, the appropriate Rolodex for that. And so we brought on a casting director and Helen's script for series two ended up being the episode that he's out at the moment, which features Dame Harriet Walter. And from something that became what I was doing off the side of my desk to working with Dame Harriet earlier on this year in the studio, it is quite remarkable um, to see how fast that has moved. But of course, things like Behind the Spine, you know, episodes are anywhere from say 25 minutes to 40 minutes. These episodes are very, very short. They're anything from five minutes to 12 minutes. So they, they're they a really easily consumable way for an audience to digest a story. And we're continuing on. I'm back in the studio um, on Thursday recording another episode. And then we'll get to the end of um, series two, however long it takes us to get there, because we've got 
you know, restrictions on when people can get to the studio. There's limited availability in the studio because of um, the COVID protocols that need to, and quite rightly, need to be in place. But that's become an opportunity for me as the producer to offer writers who might not necessarily have had credits before. And everyone works to the same terms and conditions. I'm not asking for exclusivity over the script. I'm paying them for the right to use the script in this particular format. And so what we've tried to do is tell stories that nobody's telling using writers that nobody's hiring. Uh, and it's hard as a writer. Writers listening to this will, will know how hard it is to get your work in front of someone that will actually give you money for it. There are plenty of people who won't give you money for it. But from a writing perspective, I am very passionate about the fact that writers should be paid for their work. Now, I'm not in a position to pay them a lot, but I am paying them a rate that I agreed with the Writers Guild. So that's become something that I've been very engaged with recently. Yeah, it's interesting. Obviously, as part of what you just said, as part of your answer, you mentioned coronavirus and it, you know, every single episode of Behind the Spine, even if it never alludes to it, has an element of that idea of um, of this sort of looming pandemic. You know, you've got the remote recording quality of an audio. Uh, you've got a guest explicitly saying something about how it's affected their work. Like coronavirus has, has changed and dominated so much of our lives um, that it really has become the the narrative that's um, woven throughout everything that we do. And it's, and it's sort of connecting us in, in an odd uh, and maybe slightly uncomfortable way. But I wanted to move the discussion on to talk about the National COVID Memorial in London, because uh, you recently visited and, and actually it's almost it's a structure which has almost formalized that narrative narrative and turned it into something physical like there's there's like a truly embodied form of that narrative now for people to see it's if people haven't been and they're able to um safely they really should because it's extraordinary i wasn't prepared for how emotional i would feel when i got there and and the reason i went is my uncle sadly passed away because of the virus earlier in the year. He went into hospital pretty much on New Year's Day and sadly um, didn't come out. But I read about the wall in the press, went online to have a look at the size and scale of it and, and thought, actually, I have to go down and draw a heart and write his name on it and you know share it with the family. Because one of the episodes that we, in fact, several of the episodes, as you say, have referenced coronavirus. Ordinarily, if a member of your family or a friend um, or loved one passes away, you have the opportunity to come together as a group through the funeral and then to celebrate their life. Everyone who has lost someone because of the virus or for any reason during lockdown has had that outlet of support removed from them. So there's this huge, this huge family that I'm from has not been able to come together to celebrate his life. So I went down there to write his name, draw a heart around it and make a short video and send it to the family so that they could um, have something to listen to. But it's ex it's extraordinary, Ollie. It really is. It reminded me, although in a slightly different way, it reminded me of all of the artificial poppies that were put in the grounds of the Tower of London in 2014 to commemorate the 100th anniversary of the start of the First World War. And I think each poppy represented um, a member of the Commonwealth that had passed in that conflict. And that's always impressive. It's always 
emotional and um, moving when you when you visit a memorial of any kind. But when you visit one that was for something that happened 100 years ago, it's not the same as visiting something that is there to represent someone that you knew that has been lost. And it's staggering. So it's on the stretch of the embankment opposite the Houses of Parliament. It runs the entire length of that wall. There are thousands upon thousands upon thousands of these hearts with names and each person you know rep each heart represents somebody that's lost someone and somebody that has been lost and this isn't an, an opportunity to try you know and capture that moment to remember that moment and to hopefully signify that their loss was not in vain that they will be remembered that they were loved that they did represent something and there is a very weird atmosphere around the wall there is a real sense of reverence and of grief but also of of love and of awe and when you when you are there i mean it was a it, i went on sunday it was absolutely freezing and you don't really want to hang around for very long but something compels you to just linger perhaps longer than you would and and it's I, at first I, it felt weird it felt like i was some kind of voyeur you know, intruding on moments of grief. And then it's not because you become involved in it as you, as you draw your own heart and write, you know, the name of a loved one on it, you become part of that narrative, you know, to, to keep banging on about it, but that there is a story and everything. And on that wall, there are, you know, tens of thousands of stories of, of lives lost and of people that, you know, were sadly taken by the virus. And I think that that, I mean, that stretch of, of the river, is home to a number of existing memorials that, you know, for the purposes of this, have sort of almost been co-opted into some kind of pop-up memorial for for COVID. And it's incredibly powerful. And it, it made me think about a number of things, obviously um, my uncle, but also, you know, the show and what that represented and the fact that we talk about a shared experience. We haven't in any way had a shared experience. You know, my, my experience is hugely different to for example, a single mother of three children who lives on the 14th floor of a tower block. That's not been the same experience by any stretch of the imagination. So I know what I've been able to achieve in lockdown, and I'm very, very grateful for the opportunities that I've been given. But for every person like me, there is somebody who has had their lives completely torn apart and perhaps even ended by the virus. So I felt a huge amount of emotion being in the presence of that many indicators of 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 the the size and scale of the um of the loss it's it's really remarkable yeah it, it sort of reminds me of something lara maitland said uh, or at least the episode itself where and um, she was um the mudlarker and she she mentioned that you know you can you can kind of know the history of london but it's not until you've um, gone down to the banks of the river, river thames and dredged up um, old items from London's ancient past that you get this physical thing in front of you that you can truly feel the history of London and it kind of feels like that with, with the wall you know you can you can know that many thousands of people have died uh, and particularly if you haven't been affected or one of your loved ones have, hasn't been affected you can know that but it, it doesn't seem to mean as much to you but having that physical representation of all those lives lost and seeing people write their family members names on the walls or their loved ones names on the walls suddenly that just having it there brings a new level of of understanding i think to what what exactly we've all been through this last year 
Yes. And I, I do remember vividly that conversation with Lara and she does talk about the responsibility of collecting objects that belong to other people from the foreshore. But yes, you know, particularly, I mean, I, we invited her on because I'd, I'd been given the book um, as a Christmas present and read it and loved it. And there's one particular chapter where she talks about the area where I live, which is Wapping. And, you know, she says, you can, you can smell the history, you can feel it. And, and I got that sense being at the, the COVID memorial wall, you know, you can feel the presence of those lives. You, you really can. You just need to see how people are behaving, how they're standing. It's, it's pretty staggering, you know, to think that what that represents, you know, has, has happened whilst we've all been in lockdown. It, it, it doesn't feel real, but it felt incredibly real that day when I went, when I went down there and, um, you know, I recorded a short video, sent it to the family and it's, it's quite obvious from my voice that I am feeling pretty emotional. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I just, I wasn't prepared for it. So it was really interesting just to, just to reflect on, you know, on that narrative. Yeah. I, I was sort of, um, privy to that sense of responsibility and because, um, I was quite moved by the memorial too, and it spurred me on to creating, um, a piece of audio for an award I didn't think I was going to enter, but I, you know, I, I had this idea to collect 127 names from the wall to represent the 127,000 people who've died in the UK so far of, of COVID. And you, you know, when you're, when you're there collecting the names of all these people who've passed away and who, who, their names have been put there by their loved ones, you do feel like you're almost intruding on their story a bit. Um, but then you then I sort of came to terms with that idea because you are it, it's an intrusion in one way, but they're sharing that story with you by writing the name on the wall. They want you to be a part of it. They want these names to be remembered. So it felt to me like it wasn't just, you know, a stark reminder of, of you know, the, the loss we've endured, but also sort of a message of hope that these people will never be forgotten. I, I agree. And it really I don't know why I thought of this when I was there, but I but I did. Um, it reminded me of the way that Professor Richard Bell approached his book, Stolen, which is episode two of series two. And he's talking about the slave trade. And, and in that interview, you know, he very clearly says, look. Those numbers, uh, as one historian has written, do violence by abstraction because we can't penetrate a big number. We can't even wrap our head around a number like 12 million people taken from their homes in Africa, right? So what historians of the transatlantic slave trade has done, or what I've tried to do in my book, Stolen, is to find those few cases which are better documented, better sourced than so many others in those great large flows of migrants and to tell one life or a small number of lives in as much detail as we can um, so that readers can be reminded that we are not talking about abstractions here we're talking about human beings with uh, you know with parents with hopes uh, with dreams with character with personality I, i'm convinced that we'll we'll see a lot of narratives play out this way is that the size and scale is almost too great with um with what's happened with covid that we have to make it personal it's vital that we learn the lessons from this and it's vital that we celebrate each and every person that has been lost and maybe the way to do it is as you suggest to break it down so that you know one name represents a thousand or ten thousand or whatever it whatever it might be but the size and scale is almost impossible 
to process and, and, and digest because it's so deeply offensive and wrong and horrible and, and all of those things. But we have a responsibility to tell the story, not just of what happened, but to celebrate the stories of the lives of the people that we've lost as well. So yeah, it's, I, maybe we can, maybe we can broadcast that on, on the show in a, in a few weeks or something, Ollie. Yeah. I'd love to share it. It's, um, we're able to broadcast it as soon as the competition's over, but, um, essentially the idea is it's, it's the names and, um, uh, they sort of gradually increase in number as the piece goes on It's 60 seconds, but I like, uh, I'm hoping that it has a sort of powerful message, uh, and, and sense of feeling and emotion behind it, but I'd love to share that on the show for sure. By the time that comes around, though, that might be sort of season three territory because, um, believe it or not, I mean, we started this project a year ago. It's the whole thing's happened entirely in lockdown. And yet we, you know, we're, we're a year through, we're almost two seasons through. It just seems insane. But season three is on the horizon. Um, have you got big plans for it? What are you hoping from it? Well, we've got f- we've got five or so more episodes um, before we take some time off um i've got some fascinating conversations booked for later this week and uh, and next week so we'll get those out but yes i i do think it's not the sort of case you you can't you're never done with this topic of of narrative and 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 finding learning opportunities it's everywhere it keeps going there are some people that we've already approached for the third series that have said yes there's some people that we want to get back um, because they've talked about projects that they have got coming up and perhaps when those projects are realized, they can come back on and talk about them. We've made some very bold approaches to to people who have agreed tentatively that, they, that they'd like to come out. I'd also like to do something slightly different um, in, in Series 3, conscious of not changing too much at the same time. But it was something that I was inspired to do through the end of the line, which I talked earlier about, you know, giving opportunities to writers that wouldn't necessarily have had them. I think there's something that we can do through behind the spine. Um, we have from the writing salon, an anthology coming out as soon as we can get it, um, published, which is a showcase of members of the writing salon and their work. We set them a series of, um, themes and we said, you know, either write a prose piece or a poem about these particular themes. We formed an editorial board, we selected and then edited all the work that was chosen to be in it. So we'll get that out and that will be a great showcase for the writing salon. I think there's an opportunity to do something similar for series three of Behind the Spine. We keep talking about these learning opportunities that we're finding. What I'd like to do, and I haven't got a fully formed sense of how we do it yet, but I'd like us to in some way pick some of the themes that come up more often than others. So for example, the notion of needing to be an expert in something and having an authoritative voice or the role and the importance of minor characters in your work and on lavishing attention on minor characters. I'd like to pick some of the more common learning opportunities that we've uncovered and to issue a challenge to listeners, which is take one of those lessons and write either a short story or a two-person conversation. So, you know, a, a, a script, very short script between between two characters where that lesson is revealed through the writing. And if we get sufficient interest, what we can do is commit to hiring actors to voice either the short story or those 
those conversations that are written and broadcast them as part of the show just to try and demonstrate our commitment to, okay, in the first two series, we identified a bunch of learning, uh, the learning opportunities. We've now edited and collated those together. Here they are. We've set writers a challenge to take that learning on board and to produce a demonstration of how they've applied that learning in their work. And then we've actually professionally made their work and now we're broadcasting that and then we can, you know, pay them a small fee for their, um, for their work and also hire actors to, you know, to particularly give voices to it. So I'm trying to find a way to cross pollinate both behind the spine and the writing salon as being, you know, either side of the same thing. But it's it's really something that I think is a natural extension um, to the podcast. I don't want the podcast to stand alone. Of course, if that's the only way you engage with my production company, that's absolutely fine. But I think there are other opportunities for listeners to get involved, and, and particularly if those listeners happen to be writers, to really you know make a step change in their um, in their writing. Mark Hayward, thank you very much for your time. Thanks, <laughs> thanks. I was going to say thanks for having me on, but it's my show. <laughs> A massive thank you then to, well, me for having me on the podcast. And to recap... Maybe I should take over this part, Mark. (laughs) So to recap, what have we learned? There is a narrative in everything. As Tim Harford told us, curiosity should be cultivated. It's good for writers, of course, looking for inspiration or to improve their craft. But curiosity in all things helps us break down stereotypes and gain a deeper and more sympathetic understanding of the world and people around us. Having creative minds around you will help any project you're working on flourish. For a podcast project, for instance, working with a producer broadens your creative perspective by giving you a sounding board for your ideas. And if you are thinking of starting a podcast, don't get hung up on the idea of the perfect guest. Your show should be about more than just a famous name, and often it's the most unexpected guests that deliver gold. And finally, you might want to wipe down that piece of work gathering dust on your desk. Mark nearly did nothing with the end of the line, but the project has since given him an ability to share incredible stories on a subject he's passionate about, whilst also allowing him to give work to burgeoning writers looking for their first writing credits. A win-win for everybody. Thanks for listening. He's Mark Haywood. (laughs) Let us us know what lessons you've taken away from this week's episode and share any suggestions for future guests or discussions. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, But seriously, you can get in touch with us, like and leave a comment on Apple Podcasts, uh, find us on Twitter, Facebook, we're at Behind the Spine and we will be back next week, won't we, Mark, with another new episode? Yes, we will. Goodbye for now. Stay safe and keep writing. This podcast is produced by Ollie Giyu Podcast Production. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk.